Welcome to the Private School Leader Podcast, where private school leaders learn how to thrive and not just survive at one of the most difficult jobs on earth. I'm your host, Mark Minkus. During the summer of 2014, our school was in crisis. We were having a retention crisis. We lost 40 kids from 24 families during that summer of 2014. And nine moved out of the area, so we're talking about 31 students that stayed in the area that went to local public schools or private schools. That's a retention crisis. But we rolled up our sleeves and we got to work. And one year later, the summer of 2015, that number went from 31 down to 19 students that left the school. And we decreased student attrition by 35%. And by the spring of 2016, our parent survey results were off the charts, and the overall satisfaction level from the parents was 97%. And in the summer of 2016, our retention numbers were that we had nine students in the whole school that were in the region that went to public or private schools locally. And that means our school-wide retention rate was back up over 90%. So from 31 kids leaving in the summer of 2014 to nine kids leaving in the summer of 2016. And that turnaround was so profound that we were invited to speak at the National Jewish Day School Conference in February of 2017 in Chicago. And so my head of school and admissions director and marketing director and myself, we got on a plane and we went and we presented what we did during those two years. How did we go from a crisis to a 97% parent satisfaction rate? How did we go from the summer of 2014 with 31 kids going to local private and public schools to the summer of 2016 when that number was just nine students? Well, on today's episode of the Private School Leader Podcast, I'm going to tell you exactly what we did and give you the eight ways to increase student retention that actually work. But before we jump into today's topic, I want to ask for a quick favor. My mission is to help private school leaders thrive as they serve their schools. So could you please help me out with that by share the link of this podcast with another leader or aspiring leader that you know. Want to get the word out there and want to help as many leaders as possible. So the eight ways to increase student retention that actually work. Number one, be proactive. Number two, ask ask, ask, then study the data. Number three, identify decision years. Number four, treat every family like a new family. Number five, create a culture of anticipation and paint a climactic scene. Number six, surprise and delight. Number seven, say goodbye. And number eight, retention is everyone's responsibility. So before we jump into that list, I want to talk about why retention is more important than you think. So research shows that we use seven times the resources of time, energy, money, human resources. We use seven times the resources to recruit and enroll a student than to keep a current student. When a student leaves, what do we lose? Well, we lose the opportunity to make a difference in that child's life and in that family's experience. And we lose our ability to accomplish our mission because we believe in what we do and now we can't do it with that child. 
Of course, we take the tuition, multiply it by the number of years that that child had left in our school, and we can see the cost of tuition that walked out the door. We lose parents as donors this year and every year. We lose a future student and parent alumnus, and we lose future alumnus donors and parent alumnus donors whenever a family leaves the school. So quickly, I just want to run through some research from NAIS, the National Association of Independent Schools, and they say, why do students leave? So just a few things that I'll hit you with quickly here. From division to division or at grade levels when a class size increases, many parents ask these questions. Is the student happy? Is the student well served? Is the social environment good for families and kids? Does the family feel it is receiving good value for its investment? What about the curriculum? What about the rules or the homework in this new division? And so we're going to talk about quote-unquote decision years, which typically are when a child moves from a division to a division, like lower school to intermediate school or middle school to high school. We'll talk about those in a few minutes. And then just quickly to put a bow on the NAIS research, in addition to transition points, the following factors affect student retention. The cost and values appeal of charter, magnet, or other faith-based schools, quote-unquote free education from the public school, strong family ties to a school that starts at an upper grade level, and it may compel parents to enroll children as early as possible, meaning that if your school only goes up to eighth grade then some, and there's a school where they're going to go for high school, then they may start to enroll their younger children into that school so that all of their children are at the same school. Highly social or socially struggling children may want a larger pool of friends. If you have small class sizes, that can be the downside to that. Financial reasons with the rising cost of tuition and inflation, relocation, lack of programming, disciplinary issues, the perceived prestige of another school, conflict with school philosophy or other specific issue, lack of leadership and vision for the future, and general dissatisfaction. So those are the lists from NAIS as far as parents when they most often respond as to why they leave an independent school. And finally, NAIS and other places basically put 92% as the target of retention rate that's a sign of a healthy school, 92% retention rate. So last thing before we get into this is the prerequisite for these eight things that I'm going to teach you to actually work. You have to have a high quality school. You must have a high quality school for you to do these things and for them to work because if you don't, then it doesn't matter what you do, you will not keep your families. And so how do you get a high quality school? Well, if you keep listening to the Private School Leader podcast, I'll help you with your leadership and with a lot of other things with your school. But Having a high-quality school is the prerequisite. So eight ways to increase student retention that actually work. I'll run through them one more time, and then we'll take them one at a time. Number one, be proactive. Number two, ask, ask, then study the data. Number three, identify decision years. Number four, treat every family like a new family. Number five, create a culture of anticipation 
and paint a climactic scene. Number six, surprise and delight. Number seven, say goodbye. And number eight, retention is everybody's responsibility. Now, I just want to pause and say that I really appreciate you listening to this podcast. I know that you might be driving, you might be on a run, you might be doing errands or doing things around the house as you listen. And I just threw eight things at you, and that's kind of hard to remember. Well, I've taken good care of you in the show notes that later when you have the opportunity, you can come back to theprivateschoolleader.com slash episode nine, and these steps will be there for you so that you don't have to memorize them all, but just try to take it in and hopefully these will resonate with you. And these are the eight things that we did to go from a crisis to a celebration. So number one, be proactive. So I believe that retention is about mindset. And in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, habit number one is be proactive. And he talks about two different kinds of people, proactive people and reactive people. And proactive people are ones who say, I am responsible. I can influence outcomes. I can work hard and change things. But reactive people, they're the people in life where everything just happens to them. And they don't take responsibility. And they see that they don't have any ability to change situations. And they complain. And that gives them permission to put forth less effort. And then they just stay stuck. So proactive versus reactive. We are going to be proactive about retention at our schools. We are going to get serious about getting serious about retention. We have to identify retention as a top priority. What about people in your school? Do you have an admission director? Are you a small one-person operation with administration and uh, secretary? Whatever your situation is, whatever the size of your school, there are people in your school that either it's their job or if it's a small school, it's your job as the head of school to increase your student retention. But what about a plan? You need a retention plan. Well, a place to start would be with these eight things that I'm teaching you today. And then just take it and schedule it out over the school year. This isn't just going to happen on its own. It is a rare school that can get 92% retention without lifting a finger and then just fill up those classrooms with names from their wait list. Maybe that's your school. And that's fantastic. But for most schools, that's not the case. So be proactive about families that are unhappy and find out why they're unhappy and work with them. Deal with problems sooner and more effectively. So I know sometimes I procrastinate with dealing with a student problem or reaching out to that parent. But if you view those issues, academic issues, behavioral issues through the lens of retention, it's always better to deal with problems sooner and more effectively. So what else can you do with this retention plan? Well, I've got seven more steps for you. So let's go on to number two. Ask, ask, then study the data. You need to track your retention numbers year to year in every grade and school-wide. Do you know your retention numbers off the top of your head for the last five years? Are they in a Google Doc somewhere? You need to track your retention numbers and then start looking for the trouble spots. 
Is your school-wide retention at 92% or higher? Are the trouble spots, we'll talk about that in a few moments, going from division to division, like lower school to intermediate school or middle school to high school? When I say ask, ask, then study the data, I'm really talking about does your school have an annual parent satisfaction survey? And most of you will say yes, and that's great. But if you don't, you have to ask. And if you do, maybe you need to dig into the data a little more deeply. And you say, well, we don't have one. How do I even know where to begin to create an annual parent satisfaction survey? Well, literally before I recorded this episode, I went to Google and put in private school parent satisfaction survey questions and searched. And there's pages and pages of examples. So what are some of the things you want to know? Well, what are we doing well? What do we need to, where do we need to improve? How satisfied are you? Are you getting good value for your tuition dollars? What are your suggestions on how we could do better? What's the, what's the best thing about being a family at this school? What's the best thing about your child being at this school? And then study the data. And then most importantly, and this is often the place where even schools who regularly survey their parents fall short, is to then share the data in some form with parents and staff. You keep asking every year, but you never reply to them and give them that feedback and show them what the overarching responses were. People are going to stop filling out that survey. And then also exit interviews with departing families. And I know that most of them will just say, oh, well, we couldn't afford it anymore. And maybe they'll be less honest. But to get that feedback and then also um, an annual teacher survey, maybe anonymous, if you, if you can pull that off to get more authentic feedback. So it's all about feedback. Ask and then study the data. And then number three is identify decision years. And when I say identify decision years, it's usually division to division. And I've said this a few times now. So for example, in my school, it's third to fourth grade because in third grade and younger, it's lower school. And in fourth and fifth grade, it's intermediate school. And then we have a middle school and we go up to eighth grade. So from third to fourth grade, those parents, they have a lot of questions. They're wondering about homework and they're wondering about rules and about kids changing classes and about not having the same teacher all day long and all of those kinds of things. And for us, a big place where in 2014 we identified as a decision year, really eighth grade at our school should be the decision year because that's when you decide where are you going to go for high school. But fifth grade had become a decision year. We had a three-year trend where close to one quarter or one third of the class was departing. And in 2014, nine kids out of just fifth grade left to go to other schools. So communicate early and often when you come up to these decision years. Once you've identified them, you have to be proactive in your communication to parents. They want to know what's coming, the curriculum, the rules, the homework, all of those things that I mentioned before. They don't know what they don't know. And so when you see that that's a decision year or a year where it could potentially be a decision year. You want the only decision year to be your last year. And if your school goes up to eighth grade, you want it to be where do they go to high school? And if your school goes up to 12th grade, it's the college selection process. That's the only decision year you want in your entire school experience. 
But when you see these trends developing, when you study the data, there are going to be years that are decision years for families more so than others because they're switching from division to division. And it might be in your school, when I was a head at a Christian uh, school that was for 21 years, uh, I saw a lot of times that after eighth grade and starting ninth grade was when parents started looking at public schools and it had to do with sports and it had to do with band and a lot of the uh, things that a bigger public school could offer that maybe we didn't offer. So you look at your decision years and then be very, very intentional about what you're going to do in over-communicating. Communicate early and often when it comes to those division changes. So what did we do with that fifth grade to sixth grade problem that I described? Specifically for us in that 2014 to 2016 window, here are some of the things that we did. We started holding a fifth grade parent open house in November. We invited the parents to come in and meet the middle school teachers, see the curriculum, and that was a first touch point for those fifth grade parents to break down some of those walls of communication. And then in November and December, I met with every fifth grade family for 30 minutes. And I brought them in and they sat down and I asked one question and then I told them some things after they answered that question. I said, tell me about your child as a learner and as a person. And then I just listened. And then I said, well, let me tell you a few things about our middle school. And that was 30 minutes. Uh, that fills up 30 minutes pretty quickly, but you get super, super valuable information. You build rapport and a relationship with that family. If they have specific issues, let's say they have a child that's a struggling learner or a child that's a elite athlete or a child that really loves music and performing arts, you can get into those things in that fifth grade conversation. And I did. So it was strategic timing to do it in November and December because enrollment contracts, uh, re-enrollment process was going to start in January. And so then we did a fifth grade visit to middle school day where in January where the fifth graders went up for the afternoon and hung out with the middle school kids and shadowed them to classes. We started fifth grade step up sports where the fifth graders could practice on the middle school teams. And then the athletic director would get them a few games that would be against fifth grades from other schools. We had junior student council and intermediate school drama club and junior student ambassadors to have it kind of be a feeder system for the middle school as those things when they get older in student council and in the spring musical and things like that. But I'll talk about that a little bit more when I talk about culture of anticipation. I did lunch with Mr. Minkus with the fifth graders once per trimester. We would do groups of five and we would have lunch and we would just talk about how they were doing and what they were looking forward to, what they were struggling with, what ideas they had for improving the school. And so you get five groups of five kids and you do that three times a year. It does start to add up and take time. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, in the spring, we did bridge to middle school activities for our fifth graders where they could, during advisory, come and interview a sixth grader. We did team building activities during advisory time. And then at the end of the year, I went on the fifth grade year-end trip to Gettysburg. So you might be thinking, whoa, hold, the, hold up, just hold up, pump the brakes. 
you meet with every single parent, you have open houses, you have lunches. I mean, that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like a lot of time. I can't do that. Well, yes, it was a lot of time, but you want to know what's more work and takes more time and is more stressful? Losing a lot of kids every year. Stress about the budget, stress about answering hard questions at board meetings. Keeping kids is a lot of work, but I think honestly, that it's less work than all the things that go along with losing kids. So it takes work to keep them, but I strongly believe it's way more work to lose them and to try to replace them. All right, let's move on to number four, which is treat every family like a new family. So I want to use the analogy of dating versus marriage for this one. So when I was dating my wife, flowers and dinners and romance and the way that I dressed and made sure my car was always clean when we went out on a date and all of those kinds of things. And of course, it's kind of cliche that after you get married, then you kind of become more comfortable and you maybe don't take care of yourself as much and maybe don't put forth as much effort when it comes to romance or dates and you kind of become homebodies. And so I just want you to think about that when it comes to treating every family like a new family. So in a way, when new families are considering our school, it's like a courtship. And we are pursuing them and we're showing them around on tours and we're doing all of these things. But what about our current families? What about that family that's already had three kids graduate from your school and their fourth kid is in um, middle school? And you know, do we treat them the same way that we would treat a new family? These families are making a huge financial commitment And I wonder if some of them feel like they're being taken for granted. What is their comfort level? What is their expectation? And, you know, I think that most of them don't notice, but you know what they do notice is when you have those interactions with them, when you do treat them like a new family. So it's the energy, it's the enthusiasm, it's the smile, it's the empathy, it's the care and concern, and it's that client level of client service that is often, and I'm guilty of this, reserved for the new families, but should be given to our current families as well. And make sure that you thank them in a memorable way for their commitment when they re-enroll, but be sure to thank them at other times during the year as well. And be really intentional about this and look for ways to treat every family like a new family. All right, on to number five, create a culture of anticipation and paint a climactic scene. So what's culture of anticipation? So that's something I've really tried to develop at our school, and that is that the students in your school should always know what's next. What's happening in the next grade? If they're in fifth grade, what's happening in middle school? If they're in sixth and seventh grade or eighth grade, what's coming up in high school? So for example, in our school, once Every three years, there's a trip to Hershey Park. Twice a year, middle school dances and science fair and sports. And everything in the future is a big deal. And the younger kids in the school, even the lower school kids, should know about what's coming. And so, for instance, in our school, it's a big deal that the eighth graders, when we get together for an all-school religious service in our Jewish day school, that the eighth graders are up there leading the service And now it's become a thing where the seventh graders are chomping at the bit for the eighth graders to graduate so that they can be up there and it's their turn to lead services. We do a ton of cross-grade interactions. And if you do that, then the younger kids develop 
relationships with the older kids. And I'll talk about why that's so important in a few minutes. You need to double down on traditions and rally points in your school and make sure that the kids know about these traditions, especially if they're older. So for example, in our eighth grade, we do a thing called a clap out where the whole school lines up in the hallways and then the eighth graders, we literally applaud for them and clap them out of the school on their last day of classes. And that's a tradition. And every single kid in the school from the three and four year olds up to the seventh graders know all about the clap out. And we talk about it a lot and we talk about everything that's coming a lot. Year end trips are a big deal at our school. Um, and the eighth grade year end trip to Israel is a big deal. And so kids in lower school know about the year end trip to Israel. They know about the year end trip in seventh grade to Washington, D.C. So you might say, well, okay, my school doesn't have those big year end trips and we don't really have that many traditions. Well, if you don't have enough traditions, then create traditions. And you say, well, I don't know. What do you mean? Okay, I'll give you two examples. One is at the science fair that starts at 6 p.m. on the last Thursday in January. We count it down like it's New Year's Eve where all the kids are standing out in the hallway. I have my iPad with a countdown clock on it and the doors open at 6 p.m. and they all burst in to see who won a ribbon. Well, how did we do that? Well, we did it through getting them hyped and just starting it and then it grew and now it's a thing that we do. And a second example is we have this spring picnic um, where all the parents come and we just had one uh, a couple months ago and there were like 400 people there. Um, and so then I get um, matching airbrush tattoos with the sixth graders and that's a tradition that has started and now it will continue. And it doesn't cost anything, but it's something that then I take pictures of it and post it on Instagram and the kids get excited about it. And then I talk to the fourth and fifth graders and be like, well, I sure hope you're coming to the picnic next year. And some people might say, oh, well, that sounds pretty manipulative. If it's exciting, if it's fun, if it's something that you do and all you're doing is hyping up the kids about stuff that you actually provide, then I feel like you're just making school fun. I don't feel like you're manipulating anybody. So part two of this is paint a climactic scene. So we want to use the power of storytelling. And people in a, in a story, in, in a movie, in a great book, there at some point there is a vision that looks ahead to a climactic scene in the book. The hero is standing there and there's flames all around and they've rescued the hostage. Um, and so what is the climactic scene when it comes to your school? Well, I've said before to parents, I'll be like, well, you know, when we're all standing up there in the stage and your child is getting their diploma and I mean, we're just really going to be so happy and we're going to be joking about this then. And um, another would be about uh, when your child is getting off that plane in Israel about to start that trip of a lifetime. Uh, right after graduation. And so you paint the climactic scene of the quote unquote finished product. What is the finished product with your graduate? Where are they going? What are they doing? What does it look like? What are the tools in their toolbox? What are the character traits that they've developed at your school? And then paint that climactic scene and make it vivid with vivid language, make it visual for the parent so that then they can see it. And that's the end of the story. The end of the story isn't when they change schools in sixth grade or when they change schools in ninth grade. The end of the story is the end of your story at your school. I had, and another thing is, 
I had a parent and um, recently, and they said, actually, this was a couple of years ago, they said, it was a first grade parent. She said, you know what? I just want my daughter to turn out like Lauren. And I knew exactly who she was talking about. And so when we talk about graduates, these parents, they know the graduates, many of the graduates. And so not to say that, okay, well, if your kid stays, I'm going to make them turn out like Lauren, or I'm going to this or that. But there's a typical avatar. There's a typical description that your graduates fit that description. Well, you have to paint that picture for the parents so that they can visualize their child at that age, be it the end of eighth grade or the end of 12th grade, having fully formed into that version of themselves and that your school is the bridge to get them from A to B. You've got to paint that climactic scene. And then the secret sauce is to get alumni students interacting with current parents and get alumni parents interacting with current parents so that they can deliver just by being themselves what a finished product looks like at your school. All right, we're getting to the end. I've got just a couple more here. So number six is surprise and delight. And I could talk about surprise and delight all day long. Back in episode two, I did an episode called Teacher Teachers, the top five ways to build effective relationships with difficult parents. And there was a section on surprise and delight in that episode. And you could go to the privateschoolleader.com slash episode two to the show notes. And I've actually created a plug and play PD called the top five ways to build effective relationships with difficult parents that you can use with your teachers. It's a video webinar. It's free. It's 45 minutes long. Um, it comes with a PDF of guided notes and discussion questions, and you can use it at a faculty meeting or maybe just with an individual teacher that you're trying to coach up in the area of parent communication. And again, that's just free for you as a resource, and you can find it at theprivateschoolleader.com slash episode two. But if you go back and watch that webinar or listen to that episode, there's a bunch more. I go deeper on surprise and delight. But basically, the quick version is, is that it's exactly what it sounds like. It's something unexpected that makes a parent happy. It's surprising and it's delightful. And so what I do every single day, I'll just tell a quick story that um, when I warm up my microwavable lunch, I am standing there. It usually takes five or six minutes to warm up. I pull out my phone, I look at my um, photo gallery from the previous 24 hours of photos that I've snapped around the school, and then I'll just pop it into an email and put on the subject line, recess, or Jody, or Adam, um, or science lab, and then just hit send. And it's pictures of their kids having fun, doing interesting things, and I just send them off to the parents and I don't even put anything in the body of the email, just on the subject line. Surprise and delight. And I can't tell you how many people have said, that just made my day when I saw that photo of my, my kid. Celebrate the successes. I have a teacher who she sends rock star moment emails. And everyone has their own little thing that they're a rock star at. Um, and the job of your teachers is to find it, but then to share that out with the parents. And I would say that surprise and delight is one of the most effective retention tools that I've ever used. All right, number seven is say goodbye. So I'm going to be short and sweet on this one. If you have a really disgruntled parent and you've tried really hard to make it better, sometimes you just have to let that parent and that family walk away. 
because one of the regrets in my career is all the time that I spent on families that said that they were leaving and I bent over backwards and I made promises and I spent ridiculous amounts of time and then they left anyways. So use your best judgment, try your best, give it the good faith effort to do everything that you can while maintaining your integrity to keep that family, but sometimes you have to let them leave and then use that time and energy on other families. And this is also true about your teachers. If you have a teacher that you have worked with and they are not improving and they're damaging the reputation of the school, you have to let them go. And that's another regret of mine is hanging on to teachers for too long that were harming the reputation of the school. So sometimes you have to say goodbye. And number eight, on our list is that retention is everybody's responsibility. I rarely get angry, but something that really just makes me see red is when a student leaves paper on the floor and then they say, oh, well, the janitors will clean that up. It's been a long time since I've heard that, but maybe you've heard that before. And just the narcissism, just the immaturity, just the mindset that well, someone else will clean that up. It's someone else's responsibility makes me furious. But some teachers perceive that retention is the responsibility of the admissions director and the head of school and that retention has nothing to do with them. Wrong in all capital letters, bold, underlined, highlighted in yellow. Wrong. Retention is everyone's responsibility. Teach your teachers the link between retention and a healthy school. I'll say it again, teach your teachers the link between retention and a healthy school. So what can they do? Well, first of all, they can just do a really good job, just deliver excellence in their job responsibilities. Um, in fact, the other thing that they can do is proactive communication. And in fact, episode 10, the next episode of the Private School Leader podcast, I'm going to cover the five C's of effective parent communication. So look for that next week. But your teachers can communicate positively and proactively. Also, teachers can speak positively about the school to parents. And if they have a complaint, if they have a beef, if they're upset about something, they have to discuss it with their supervisor and not with parents. And also, teachers can let their supervisors know if they hear that a family might be considering another school. We all know that kids talk, and that's usually where we hear it first. And the last thing that they can do is smile. Smile, smile, smile. Makes a huge difference. All right. So during the summer of 2014, our school had a retention crisis. And in just two years, we solved it. So how did we go from a crisis to a celebration? How did we go from a crisis to over 90% retention rate and 97% parent satisfaction rate? Well, the answers are in today's big takeaways as we quickly review the eight ways to increase student retention that actually work. Number one, be proactive. Make retention a priority and create a retention plan. Number two, ask, ask, then study the data. Create a parent satisfaction survey and then dive deep into the data. Number three, identify decision years. Identify your decision years, usually a transition from one division to another in your school, and take action to communicate with your parents early and often. Number four, treat every family like a new family. Make sure that you never take your current families for granted. Number five, create a culture of anticipation and, a, and paint a climactic scene. 
Make sure that your students always know what's next at your school and get them excited about it. And use the power of storytelling to paint a climactic scene of a student as a finished product at your school. Number six, surprise and delight. Look for ways to unexpectedly make your parents happy by sharing rock star moments. Number seven, say goodbye. If they're harming your school, you need to let a parent or a teacher walk away. And number eight, retention is everyone's responsibility. Make sure your teachers know the role that they play in achieving high student retention numbers. So as you know, I like to always give a call to action. And your call to action this week is identify your decision years, which are usually from one division to another. Identify your decision years, quote unquote, and make a list of five things that you're going to do to make that transition easier. What are the five things you're going to do to be able to make that transition easier and to communicate with parents early and often? All right, wrapping it up. I hope that you got value from this episode. I want to help you thrive as you serve your school. And from one private school leader to another, I know that you deal with a lot of stress and a lot of specific issues. And I just want to try and help add value and help you learn from the mistakes that I've made. And I've created a free resource for you called The Six Things That Every Private School Teacher Wants From Their Leader. And this guide is a six-page PDF that will just be a game changer for you, I, I believe. And I guarantee that if you do these six things, the teachers at your school will be happy to follow you. And you can get that free guide by going to the privateschoolleader.com slash guide. Just another free resource for you to help you as you serve your school. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can find show notes over at the privateschoolleader.com slash episode nine. A new episode comes out every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at The Private School Leader. And if you got value from this episode, please rate and review it on the on your podcast app. And also please share it with another leader or aspiring leader that you know. And I've been your host, Mark Minkus. I just want to say how much I appreciate you and the amazing work you're doing as you're serving your school and how much I appreciate you taking some precious time to join me today. And I will see you next time on the Private School Leader Podcast. And until then, always remember to serve first, lead second, and make a difference.